God be praised. Dr. Tu, thank you so much for this gracious invitation, the opportunity to stand and represent Christ tonight. Dr. Blake Newsom, my brother, my friend, once again, you have blessed me. And uh, we continue our fellowship together across the years. To Dr. Ted Trailer, I've never heard you preach across these years without being very cognizant of the fact that the DNA of your preaching is your pneumatology, your doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's the bedrock of your preaching, which has inspired me and helped me to understand more than ever before the indispensability of the Spirit's work and power in our preaching. Thank you for your exposition, but thank you for allowing that exposition to be empowered by the Spirit. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 20. I don't know how far I'll get. My brother has allowed me to use his watch. It says 7.55, which means I need to be done by 8.25. Now let's see. Second Chronicles chapter 20, I'm going to read verses one through 12. Hear these words from the word. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, together with some of the Midianites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you. They're already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah, who gathered to seek the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. He said, Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before our people Israel? And who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. Now here are the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possessions that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do. But we look to you. I have discovered 
that God makes us strong by surrendering us to weakness so that we know for certain that our strength resides in him alone. I have discovered that God makes us strong by surrendering us to weakness so that we know for certainty that our strength resides in him alone. If that sounds theologically and biblically, biblically responsible, repeat it after me. Now, if it doesn't, if it sounds like it's bordering on heresy, don't, don't say anything. But if you believe that's true, repeat after me. God makes us strong by surrendering us to weakness so that we know for a certainty that our strength resides in him alone. This is a paradox. Strength in weakness. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements, that is two seemingly contradictory statements, meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. It's what G.K. Chesterton, that famed uh, Roman Catholic lay theologian from Great Britain meant when he says that a paradox is truth standing on his head, screaming for attention, saying if you come closer, no matter how bizarre this looks, you will find truth in it. It's what Jesus meant. Oftentimes when he talked in ways that seemingly was a way of subverting truth, because to follow Jesus was to follow him paradoxically. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is not logical. He is supra-logical. He subverts truth, not perverts it, but he subverts it and causes it to stand on his head. Dr. Trailer mentioned already, if you want to be exalted, you have to be humbled. If you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last. If you really want to be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to sit at the head of the table, you have to sit at the end of the table. You want to find your life, you've got to lose your life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, I glory in my weaknesses, in my hindrances, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And I've discovered that God oftentimes makes us strong by surrendering us to weakness so that we might know for a fact that our strength resides in him alone. This chapter opens up with a threefold coalition. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites, who are the Edomites, have surreptitiously, secretively formed this coalition to fight against Jehoshaphat. It's a family feud. The Ammonites and the Moabites, they are the descendants of Lot's 
And the Edomites, their descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. The family of Abraham. Coming together to fight against Judah, Jehoshaphat, its king. Michael Corleone, Corleone in The Godfather, part two, says, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. And what happens when your friends become your enemies? Keep them closer so that you have a tactical advantage. When those individuals turns, when those individuals opposes you, you have an idea what they're up to because you kept them close to your heart, but you have God in your heart. God has a way of sending you advance bulletins, notices, letting you know that something is up. Sometimes he'll wake you up in the morning about two or three o'clock when you're not used to getting up until about six o'clock. And you want to say to him, God, two more hours. But the spirit broods and hovers over you and you can't get up. You can't lay back down. You get up and read the word. You get up and meditate and the spirit takes and speaks to you at about 12 o'clock that day. Those friends have become enemies and they began to launch missiles against you and you're ready for them. You know why? Because he got you up at two and three o'clock in the morning to prepare you for what was being prepared for you. And you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wickeds. What happens when there's a family feud in your own church? It's not the people outside. It's not the drug dealers. It's not the saloons. That's not what's bothering you. It's people who oppose your leadership strategy. People who oppose your vision. And some of them have been your greatest supporters. And now they have turned. You know why? Because what you are doing is what the Spirit is leading you to do versus what tradition has positioned them to always stand for. And you have to make a move that you are going the way of truth and not the way of tradition, which violates our customs and our cultures. Ah, keep your friends closer, close, but keep your enemies closer and keep God within your heart. They are opposing Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. You remember Jehoshaphat? If you flip back to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, you get a very brief biographical sketch of Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 17 verse 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat is a godly king. The Bible says that he did not walk in the ways of the Baals, but in the ways of the of David, his former days before the 47th year of his life, he had an affair. Before that time, no. He did not consult the Baals at all. He walked in the ways of the righteous David. He's, he's a godly king. He's a righteous king. In verse number five, he's a rich king. The people of Judah bring him gifts, bring him wealth. 
And in verse number 11, the Arabs bring him livestock and the Philistines bring him silver and other gifts. He's a godly king. He's a rich king. He's a righteous king. Verse number five, verse number six, he goes up to the hills and tears down the altars where sacrifices were made. Tears down the sexually illicit Asherah poles because he wants to be the drum major of righteousness in his kingdom. He's a righteous king. He's a rich king. He is a godly king. Verses 7 through 9, he's a king that leads Israel, rather the southern kingdom, to a revival. Not a survival, but a real revival. He sends men throughout all the townships, all the cities of the southern kingdom, teaching the Torah, teaching the scripture. Because he knows that you cannot have a sustained revival unless the Bible is number one. There must be the centrality of the word, not as an aside, but as a priority, as Dr. Trailer was telling us. But not only does he have that, he's a king that has a tremendous military regime. The Bible says in verses 14 through 19, verse 14, he has 300,000 soldiers. Verse 15, he has 280,000 soldiers. Verse 16, he has 200,000 soldiers. Verse 17, he has 180,000 soldiers. Verse 18, the same. So that in all, he has 1,160,000 soldiers. Verse 19, not counting those in the reinforced cities of his kingdom. So he has a strong military regime. And that all factors in verse number 10 to this. All the surrounding nations were fearful to attack him because God was fighting for Jehoshaphat and Judah. And now we see how ridiculous it is for Ammon, Moab, and the Edomites to form this secretive three-nation uh, coalition to fight against him because in essence the fight against him is the fight against God hear this when one would think that this would be peaceful God is fighting for them no one would fight against him when God is blessing the devil starts messing if you have not had spiritual warfare in your ministry for a long time it's a bad sign. If you haven't met the devil lately, it may mean that you're going the same way he's going. This is not a picnic. Uh, this is not some kind of vacation. This is spiritual warfare. When the devil attacks your ministry, he's complimenting you. I think sometimes about the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, before the bones became dry, when there was meat on the bones in that hot, arid desert, there were vultures flying above because it was a picnic in the desert. But there are no vultures now. These are dry bones, and vultures don't mess with dry bones. When the devil messes with your ministry, 
It's a compliment. It means that you affect to the kingdom. Thank God for vultures. Thank God for an attack. And remember that God is fighting for you. Jehoshaphat, verse number three, is fearful. The Bible says that when he receives this report that the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Midianites or the Edomites are ganging together, coming together to fight against him, he seeks the Lord because he's afraid. The king? Afraid? Kings are not supposed, supposed to be afraid, are they? He's just real. He's, as my grandchildren say, he's scared. And it's okay. Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, once said that courage is fear on his knees saying its prayers. When are we going to get to the place where we can just tell God how we feel? God is not fragile. He's faithful. You ought to be able to tell him how you feel. You know, it's interesting in the book of Job, the first two chapters, Job is talking. God is talking to Job. God, God. Chapter one, chapter two. In fact, Job didn't know the prologue. That was his problem. He didn't know that God was talking behind his back. God's talking in chapter one. God's talking in chapter two. God says nothing in chapters three to 37. For 35 straight chapters, God is silent. And Job is talking back and forth throughout those 35 chapters. How long can you wait before God speaks? Some of you right now are in chapter 28 and you're ready to throw in the towel. I'm very serious. You only have 10 more chapters. And some of you are really in chapter 37. You only have one more chapter before there's a breakthrough. Just one more, one more. And you're ready to give up. God shows up in chapter 38. Job, stand up like a man. You've been talking so much. Let me ask you this question. After God speaks in 38, 39, 40, 41, Job admits, I've heard of you in my ears, but now I've seen you padim, ah, padim, face to face. And I didn't know anything about what I was talking about. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I say to you, tell God how you feel. He'll give you the privilege of the first word, but he always has the last word. The last word. Jeremiah just says to God what he feels. He says, God, in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, you deceive me. You entice me. That Hebrew word, pata. Hmm. You seduce me. That's what it means. You sovereignly seduce me. You've made me a laughing stock. I said, I wouldn't speak anymore in your name. His word was in my heart like fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary holding in. Indeed, I could not. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I say to you once again, tell God how you feel. He already knows. Huh? Because Psalm 139 verse 2 says, he knows our thoughts are far off, which really means that before I get the thought, he takes and abducts the thought. He kidnaps the thought even before I get it. So you just want to tell him. I'm frustrated, Lord. I'm disappointed in you, Lord. I'm angry, Lord. And he'll just, and listen, because he's got it all in control. 
and allow you to say what you want to say and yet never leave you. Because in that 16th chapter of Matthew, when people uh, begin to think about Jesus, they think about him in terms of Jeremiah. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some say that you're Jeremiah. That's quite a compliment from a person who says, you deceive me. You entice me. You seduce me. We wouldn't talk like that. In fact, if Ted trailer was to say something like that, all of us would abandon him because we'd be waiting for some kind of thunderbolt to come down. But God allows us to say what's in our heart because he knows what's in our heart before it gets in our heart. And then he straightens us out and Jeremiah is able to come out of that singing and working through the book of lamentation. It is because it's a steadfast love that we're not consumed. He has compassions. They fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. From a person who just said, you seduce me. His mercies are greater and new every morning. And therefore, we can be real and honest with God. He's scared. He falls on his knees. And then he gets up from his knees and causes the assembly of the people of God to come to the courtyard of the temple. I like the first Thursday in May. I think it's the first Thursday in May, the National Hour of Prayer. I think it's great. I I just think God is getting tired of national holidays of prayer. Whatever happened to sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my father's throne, makes all my wants and wishes known in seasons of distress and grief. My soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter snare by thine return. Sweet, that urgency of regular, consistent prayer and not waiting for a special holiday in which we do it. They come down to the temple courtyard and Jehoshaphat offers a prayer, a prayer that is compartmentalized into three rhetorical prayers. That is prayers that have obvious answers. At NOBTS and Level College, our mission is to prepare servants to walk with Christ, to proclaim His truth, and to fulfill His mission. If God's calling you to take your ministry a step further, let us help. Visit us at nobts.edu. Verse number six. God, are you not the God who rules over who is in heaven, who rules over the kingdoms of the earth, all power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you? And the answer, of course, is yes. You are sovereign. You rule in heaven, and you rule over all the kingdoms of the earth, and no one can withstand you. We serve a sovereign God. There's no need of saying God is still on the throne. Get rid of the word steal. Where else is he going to be? God is on the throne. And he is in charge of this world. This is my father's world. And here, this sovereign God speak to us today. He's the same God who stepped out of nothing because there was nothing to step out of. 
and stood on nothing because there was nothing to stand on and said that nothing becomes something. He's the God who said, let that be light. And light became traveling at 186,000 miles a second. Interesting that he takes and creates light on the first day. On the fourth day, he says, let there be a sun. How do you have light on the first day and the sun on the fourth day? Mm. Because light comes from the sun, right? Wrong. <laughs> light doesn't come from the sun. In Revelation 22 and 5, the Bible says, there shall be light, but there will not be a sun. There will not be a moon. There will not be stars. Light comes from him. And God does things in such a way that you can't. I say, don't demystify the mystery of God. Don't unscrew the unscrutability of God. And don't try to figure out the, the unfigureoutability of God, which is not a word except one that I just coined. <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea, and he rides on every storm. And then William Cooper says in that last line, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Can't understand him, but he is sovereign. Yes. So we ask that. Are you not the sovereign God who's in control? And the answer, of course, is yes. In verses 7, 8, and 9, it's a rhetorical prayer that revolves around God being in the history of his people. You're the God who evicted all of these seven nations that were in Canaan because you promised it to your friend, Abraham. You said Abraham in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Abram, his non-covenantal name at that time, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your uh, acquaintances, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you a man of a great nation. Your descendants will be as multitudinous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God promised him that and gave it to him 500 years later. And now the prayer is we are abiding in this land that you promised your friend Abraham. We have built a temple in your name. And we've said to ourselves, if calamity or famine or sword or pestilence would come against us, we'd come together in front of this temple that's constructed in your name. And we would pray for deliverance and you would not only hear us, but you would deliver us. Are you not that God? Are you not the God of our history? Yes! Are you not the God who promised that you would bring us after dwelling in a foreign land for 400 years, namely Egypt, bring us out of that land? Did you not do it? Yes! That's why past experience ought to give us present confidence. Past experience. That's, that's the only thing that enabled David to go and fight Goliath with confidence. And Goliath looked at him as a little boy. I'll give your body to the, to the beast of the field, the birds of the air. And David says... When my father gave me the responsibility of taking care of his sheep, a bear came up against the sheep and I killed the bear. 
A lion came up against the sheep, and I killed a lion. And God will enable me to defeat you, you uncircumcised giant. Because of what God did, God's able to do now. You ought to have some redemptive flashbacks, reruns in your mind, so that you don't have any excuse to say to God, look, this is what I'm going through now. Uh, it's, it's as if you're saying, and if I'm saying to God, I finally came up with something that you couldn't handle. He'll take you back to a situation where there was no way you could have gotten through. No luck would have gotten you through that. I know what it's like to be given a diagnosis of cancer twice. I know what it's like to have a stroke twice. I understand all of those things. The only way I've gotten through is God did it. You've got to have something in your life that will not ever, ever, ever receive any kind of answer to except that God did it. Not what people voted on. Not what was given in your hand. But God did it. God repaired my marriage. God brought my wandering child back home. God healed my body. God made a way out of no way. God did it. You've got to have that. Past experience will give you present confidence. So he's the God of sovereignty. He's the God in our history. But he is the God of equity, divine equity. Verse 10, 11, and 12a. But now, you know that there's a conjunction there. Something is getting ready to take place. But now, the land in which we dwell, the promised land, we're in jeopardy of being ousted by the Mayanites, by the Edomites. Uh, these are the same people that when we came out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they opposed us. We just wanted a temporary easement to go through the land on our way to the promised land. But they wanted to fight against us. And you would not let us fight them. They are related to us. That's Jacob's twin brother. But look how they are repaying us. And then that question in verse 12a. Will you not judge them? Notice. Will you? not judge them. They understand, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God takes and governs himself by covenantal conduct. Covenantal conduct. He is not capricious in terms of having feelings and emotions that just go up and down. God acts according to covenantal conduct. And the covenant says, and God makes it in himself, that those who blesses the descendants of Abraham, I'm going to bless. And those who will curse the descendants of Abraham, I am going to curse. That's the covenant. And God is not a contractual God at all. It is not you do 50% and he'll do 50%. No, God is faithful if we are totally unfaithful. And God keeps his covenant even though we don't live up to our terms. He loves us in spite of us. And therefore, they thought back on God. Will you not judge them? Will you not pay them back for what they are doing? They understood that God acts according to his covenant. That's exactly why Haman, who had built, built gallows 
to have Mordecai hung on and to exterminate all of the people of God in Persia. That's why God reversed the tables because it wasn't Mordecai's life that was at stake only. It was the remnant's ability to return from Persia, which meant Judah was a part of that remnant. If they had perished, then the conduit, the channel through which Jesus would come through, Judah would be destroyed. And no Judah, no Jesus. And God acted based upon his covenant. Listen to me when I say this to you. If God has promised to keep you, you can believe it. I don't care what people will do. When one door is closed, he's the only one I know who has the master key to every door in the universe. And there's no door that he cannot open. And there's no door that he cannot close. He acts according to covenantal conduct. There are three acknowledgments here as my time is about up. There are three acknowledgments here, and the first acknowledgment is found in 12b. Notice what he says in 12b. We have no might. We don't have any power, which sounds utterly ludicrous. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 14 and 19, he has 1,160,000 soldiers, not counting in verse 19, those soldiers in the the fortified cities. No might. Oh, he has an army. They have weapons. They have swords and chariots. But that's not the kind of might they need. They need gods. America, thanks be to God, we got a great defense uh, system, not only the interior, but the foreign facilities that we have. That's wonderful. But we need more than a defense system. Our only hope is God. Our only help is God. It's all right to have a big building with a lot of bodies in it and big bucks there. That's not what we need. It's all right. I'd rather be in no building sitting underneath a shade tree and God is in it than to be in a big cathedral and God has written Ichabod, the glory of the Lord hath departed from it. We need God. We have no might. It's an admission of impotence, impotence. The reason why God is not using us like he wants to is we are not willing to be weak enough. We are too self substantial. We've got our degrees. We are dying by degrees, literally. And no, no, we, 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 are, we are able to organize and strategize and do all these things. But until you're willing to look up to God and say, Father, I stretch my hand to thee. No other help I know. If you would withdraw yourself from me, whither shall I go? Guide me, O thy great Jehovah, pilgrims through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Are you willing to be weak enough to admit that you're that weak? That's how, that's, that's how Ezekiel felt when he went into the valley of dry bones. Bones everywhere. Hmm. Detached, etc. 
And I say to preachers, I'm, I'm, I plan to do this uh, someday. I may do it with my upcoming fall class and preaching. Take them to a graveyard and ask them to preach. Give their best sermons, their three points, the illustration, everything. Ask them, what is your ability to raise the dead out here? How strong are you? How smart are you? What is your GPA going to do in the graveyard? You and I have got to get to the point where we admit to God, I'm weak. I can't do this. I've been trained, but I need more than training. He acknowledges weakness, his impotence. Second of all, he acknowledges something else. We have no mic. We don't know what to do. I'm ignorant. Ignorance does not mean stupidity. It just simply means I don't know. And God asked Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? He wasn't smart enough to give an answer in terms of his own ability. He just simply said, Lord, God, you know. Hmm. Some of us need to admit to God we don't know. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And what do you say when you don't know how to answer? Just tell him, Lord, I'm ignorant. Lord, my training has not prepared you. You know, seminary doesn't prepare you for every situation that you face in the pastorate. Mm, I am ignorant. But then he says, but our eyes upon you. Lord, I look to you for illumination. Show me. And there is Ezekiel, knowing that his words alone, his illustrations, his transitions, his subpoints, and all of that will not raise the dead. He looked to God and the Ruach, the wind, the spirit from the four corners of the earth came and blew into these decomposed corpses, and they stood up like a mighty army of the Lord. He was saying, in essence, to us, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I see our Lord. There he is. He has been reduced to impotence, weak, so weak that he could not carry the cross to the crucifixion site and needed an accompaniment, Simon of Cyrene to carry it. So weak. He could have called his father uh, in heaven to do something for him, to bring down 12 legions of angels, 6,000 in each legion, 72,000 angels. It only took one to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, but he didn't. So weak, he was reduced to impotence. And if the Lord was reduced to impotence, that will happen to you sometime when you will not have power and you will have to depend upon him. Not only does he uh, experience impotence, but he experiences, if you will, ignorance. Hear me when I say this to you, because we always want to protect the deity, the divinity of the Lord, but we don't want to admit that he also is human. Incarnation is not 50% God and 50% human. 
Incarnation is 100% God and 100% human. And Jesus comes to the God in the Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's struggling between going the way of the cross and yet yielding to his own human sensibilities. This whole idea, even though he knew the purpose for which he was born and the reason he came into the world, he is still trying in his humanness to evade the cup. Because what was in the cup was not just death. That's not what it was. But separation between him and his father. The first time in all creation in which they ever would have been separated. But there is a sense there of humanness that brings about what shall I do? For even Jesus himself admits, no one knows the day when the Son of Man shall come. The angels don't know. I don't know. That's ignorance. That's admitting that he didn't know in his human self. No one understands this completely. But he says, even the Son of Man doesn't know when the Son of Man going to come back. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it's all right for you to admit there are things I don't know. There are some things I may not know. There are some places that I may not go. But this one thing I do know, that God is real, for I can feel him in my soul. Yes, God is real. Real in my soul. Yes, God is real, for he has washed and made me whole. His love for me is like pure gold. Yes, God is real. He's real in my soul. And so therefore, it's all right to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know. I can't figure out how I'm going to navigate these turbulent waters. But I do know that you know. And even if I don't know, if you tell me to run to the wall and run through the wall, my job is to run at the wall. And about the time I get to the wall, for you to make a hole in the wall. God is the kind of God that honors our ignorance. But last of all, he's the God who illuminates, who helps us to see. And so it was this Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He does die. I declare that he dies. Dies until the sun stops shining. Dies until the moon had a hemorrhage and dripped drops of blood. Dies until the earth, like an inebriated man, started reeling and rock. He died one Friday and stayed in the grave all night Friday. Stayed there all day Saturday. But Sunday morning, he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. And so I leave you today to tell you because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, then life is worth living because he lives. And I'm seven minutes past my time. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to To Win the Many, a podcast of the Caskey Center at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. The Caskey Center for Church Excellence provides ministerial resources, including undergraduate and graduate scholarships for ministers serving Southern Baptist churches in Alabama, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, and Wyoming. For access to additional resources or more information about our scholarship opportunities, visit our website at caskeycenter.com or nobts.edu.